on today's episode, we're going to be talking about the power of storytelling. We're going to be talking about product design and the iteration process. And we're also going to be talking about creating incredible customer experiences. From Engagement, I'm David Millay, and this is Flip the Switch. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. Our guest today is Justin Schneider. Justin is the founder and CEO for Wolf and Shepherd. And if you haven't heard of Wolf and Shepherd, that's okay. If you have, you probably love them. So Wolf and Shepherd is basically a performance dress shoe. The way they describe it, they're all about having shoes that perform as hard as you do. They've been around for about five years. They're up to 44 employees, and they're growing and evolving every day. But Justin is a beast in his own right. As a member of the track and field team at Notre Dame, he competed in the heptathlon and the decathlon while majoring in industrial design. After school, he honed his craft on the product side, working as a shoe designer for Adidas, New Balance, and Reebok. I've actually got a few pairs uh, that I didn't realize that Justin played a big role in designing, uh, come to find out years later. Um, but after his time designing shoes, he took on an eight-month project in Madagascar, where he documented and illustrated pictures of medicinal plants for National Geographic. So in a weird way, he's got a knack for storytelling too. When he had a conversation with one of his friends about how uncomfortable his dress shoes were, he decided to get back in the game and build a high-performance dress shoe. Justin's been honored with Forbes 30 Under 30 back in 2017 and numerous other industry awards, and Wolf & Shepherd is one of the fastest-growing companies in his industry. We wanted to have Justin on the show for a few reasons, right? Uh, he's not your typical sports exec that sometimes we have on the show. Um, so here's what we thought he would bring to the table that you guys can think about uh, through your own lens. So one, he was a former student athlete himself, and he shares a little bit with us about how that experience has impacted his approach to life after sports. Reason number two, his insights around storytelling, innovation, and creating experiences that customers love are super applicable to sports and entertainment and live events. Reason number three, I'm ready to see some variety in shoe wear in our industry. I love those Cole Haan Lunar Lawns that I see at every conference and every event that all of you guys have a pair of, but I'm ready for the next evolution of footwear in our industry. One more thing before we jump into our conversation with Justin. He totally threw me off guard and surprised me at the end, and he offered a promo code for any of our listeners. So if you decide to buy a pair of shoes while we're trapped inside for as long as we're working from home because of coronavirus, you can enter the code ENGAGEMENT25 at checkout and get 25% off of your purchase. So without further ado, please enjoy our conversation with Justin Schneider. Justin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks, David. Uh, excited to have you on. Um, so we first met back at our time uh, at ND. I would never say we were really like close friends or anything like that, um, but acquaintances for sure. And I've followed along your journey. So excited to, uh, to dive in here. Yeah. Um, why don't we start with talking about your career as a student athlete? Because I know a lot of our listeners either work in college athletics, were college athletes themselves, or have been around that space. So why don't we talk a little bit about some of the things that you've learned and taken into your life after sports? Um, and what are those lessons that you've learned and been able to apply to your business from your time as a decathlete? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so uh, I was a track and field athlete at the University of Notre Dame. And, um, you know, was initially uh, recruited to be an 800 runner. Um, I happen to be able to do a couple other events like high jump and long jump. And, you know, I had decent foot speed. So, um, I ended up getting picked up by their multi-events coach, their jumping coach. And I, uh, had the opportunity to, uh, run for four years at the university of Notre Dame. Um, I ended up, uh, grabbing the heptathlon school record, uh, my sophomore year. Um, and, um, you know, I, I felt I had, you know, done everything I could to kind of succeed both as an athlete and as a student. Um, one of the interesting things you learn while running track and field um, at Notre Dame or at really any school is um, 
how much you have to be internally motivated. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of sports, some sports are more popular than others. I'd say things like track or swimming, you know, a lot of, it's not getting exactly the, the press and the renown for how good you are at the sport externally and, and probably not by your peers. But one thing you find is that like track and field athletes are highly motivated. They're uh, particularly in the multi events. Um, you find that, you know, you're, you're waking up at 6am in the morning for, for an hour and a half of practice before you're going to class. Then you've got into the practice in the middle of the day um, from like 11 to 1230, you're grabbing your lunch in the brown bag and, you know, and then you're, you're trudging through the snow to class and then back for another practice from three to five and lifting from five to six thirty, And then you're in the, you know, um, you're, you're in the training room getting heat, heat or ice and stem. And so you've got a full day. It's a full-time job just doing the multis because you're training for all these different events. And one thing I learned from that, that was really helpful for me when I, when I left Notre Dame and was working as a footwear designer. And then after that was, um, how much, you know, having internal curiosity, internal, um, drive to, to get better at things and to know how things work. Um, because you had to do that and you had to, you, even with your coaches, there was always, you know, an event that was a weakness that you needed to make better. And you realize that as a decathlete, you have to be, uh, good at everything. And, and something that we've actually talked about here at, at Wolf and Shepherd is we always say like, um, you know, it's, it's not a, a jack of all trades, master of none. It's a jack of all trades and be a master of at least one. So, you know, we, we want to, we want to be able to do that kind of on and off the field. And so I think one thing I learned was, you know, to be a great decathlete, um, at the college level, you can't just be okay at every event. You have to be pretty good. And, um, in this case, if you wanted to go to nationals or you wanted to be the top, you know, one of the top decathletes in the country, you, you needed to be good enough to go to conference and score, probably win in your event. Um, and probably be able to go to nationals in at least one event as well. Um, so being very, um, being able to kind of do things like pick up in a, you know, a steel implement and throw it as far as your competitor, um, to be able to run a hundred meter dash and to be able to, to long jump or triple jump, uh, or long jump and or hurdle, uh, like everyone else was kind of a necessary thing to, to be successful. Um, and I found that that's really important, especially now in entrepreneurship. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I think that lesson for me as well. Um, so I only played on the soccer team for one year at ND there, but coach Clark, I remember he pulled me aside one day and he said, Hey, look, like realistically, you've got to be good at everything. You've got to be the best on the team at one thing. If you're going to stand out. And I think that does come into play here as we're both entrepreneurs with these companies. It's like, you've got to, you got to do everything. Um, and I think it's making yourself valuable on the team that way is the same thing that applies in any organization, whether you're an entrepreneur or not, right? If you can be good at everything, but you're the go-to guy or girl for one thing, you're going to make yourself invaluable. Um, so that's a key thing. Um, what, what, what are some other lessons and things that you picked up? I mean, I know just from a resilience, the classic things, uh, work ethic, those are all certainly things. What are some other things that you really feel like have benefited you as you've started Wolf and Shepherd? I, I really think that, um, you know, initially when I, when I started Wolf and Shepherd, I had a little bit of fear that I didn't know how to start a business or I didn't know how to be a business owner or to, or what I was supposed to do with my time. And, um, I think when I, when I look back now at what was really pertinent was actually more of kind of these, um, learnings I had, you know, going through college, playing sports of, of things like discipline, discipline, grit, hustle. You know, it's funny in every one of our buildings right now, we have uh, five locations in all five locations. We have this neon hustle sign and, and the first employee to come into the office has the, has the honor of turning on the light before any other lights. And then the last person to leave, it's the last light to go off in the office or the warehouse or the retail store. Um, I like, I like that it has the honor of turning on the light. I like yeah. this, just that re <laughs> subtle reframing of words, but anyway, continue. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think, we have that because, you know, when I look back, a lot of times people have asked me, you know, how do you start a business? And it's like, should I study this? Or maybe I should get a job in consulting first and I'll get some experience. And certainly those things do help you learn to make better decisions. Um, they give you um, the work ethic and discipline of working long hours. Um, because the funny thing is when you start a business, um, similar to when you start a sport or you have to develop kind of like a foundation, you don't, it, it doesn't require that you have the highest pedigree or you have the most relationships. It actually requires that you're willing to do whatever it takes to survive or to win. And 
I think a lot of times I found in the first year of starting Wolf and Shepherd that, you know, um, it wasn't, did I have the experience of the prerequisites as much as it was, um, you know, was I willing to keep going when other people would have given up? Um, and that's certainly something that I think comes from the discipline of waking up every morning and, you know, deciding that I'm going to go to the gym or I'm going to walk through, you know, four or six inches and sometimes a foot of snow in, in South Bend uh, to go to practice <laughs> with one other guy or even, you know, getting, getting there before your coach does. And you're waiting for, you know, the security guard to unlock the gym so you can practice. Um, that requires, I think, a lot of internal motivation and grit that um, can be trained and often, I think, comes from people who've played sports at a high level. Yeah. It, it, um, have you read playing to win by AJ Laffley, the Procter and Gamble guys? Uh, I, I love you. You tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you should definitely read it. It was recommended to me by, um, another one of our former classmates at ND, Kevin Doyle. Okay. Um, and it's the, the whole analogy is basically, it's all about Procter and Gamble's strategy, go to market strategy, basically, and how they decide what products they're working on and, um, you know, how they, how they market them, what categories are they going to invest more time in than others. But the whole, the whole thing is just a giant sports metaphor, right? The book is called playing to win. And that's the whole, what's your, what's our playing to win strategy. Um, right. and so it's, it's just really interesting. I think there's just so many ties and we can continue. And if anybody wants to go check out, uh, there's another great resource that Justin was on talking more about this, which is, uh, I think it was, what was it called? The how to, or how success happens, uh, something like that. We'll, we'll link to it in the bio. Uh, another link that another podcast that Justin was on where he kind of went more in depth on this. Right. Um, well, let's, let's jump more into the story of, of Wolf and Shepherd and, and how you've been spending, uh, the last, uh, five or so years. Right. Um, so let, let's talk about kind of the, these three pillars that you guys have built the company around, which is incredible stories, incredible products, incredible customer experiences. Um, give us, before we go into that, just kind of overarching, what is Wolf and Shepherd? How is the company created? And then let's jump into the first pillar, which is incredible stories. Sure. So, Wolf and Shepherd is a footwear company that was launched on the premise of making the world's most comfortable dress shoes. And that, you know, the idea came about um, after having ran track at Notre Dame. I wanted to be a footwear designer. Um, ended up uh, getting a job with Adidas um, as a shoe designer, working on future concepts. Hopped over to New Balance, worked at Reebok, um, designing inline inline products like ZigTech and RealFlex. And, um, you know, when you're designing products at these bigger companies, um, one thing I was trained and it, it kind of go, comes in hand in hand with, with sports was, you know, what is the objective of the designer? And the designer's objective is not to design the coolest thing for themselves, but is to, de to design a product that is lighter, faster, more comfortable, and ultimately inspires the wearer, the athlete to win. So it's all about winning. And, um, you know, it's funny. I, my first product that I went to market with was a, um, a track spike. It's called the XC5000. Jenny Berenger uh, won a gold medal wearing this shoe. Um, and, awesome. uh, you know, when I think about this, this product, it was, you know, well, I'm, I'm designing a track spike. It's something that like 0.01% of the population is ever going to wear. Um, and you think about it, it's like, well, what is the track spike equivalent for everyone else? Um, if I'm not designing for the 0.01%, what if I'm designing for the other 99.99%? Um, and what do they need to perform on their field of performance? So the, the whole, you know, whole, whole idea behind Wolf and Shepherd was to equip the working professional to succeed in their field of performance, whether that's, you know, banking or consulting or, you know, you're an artist or a designer or entertainer, like you're on your feet. And that's the only thing that's between you and the ground is your shoes. So if we can equip you to, to perform on your field to win, um, that's kind of ultimately what we want to do. So we our, our kind of our, our mission is, you know, a well-lived life is a demanding journey. And our job is just say, to say that. Say that one more time. Our, our mission is a well-lived life is a demanding journey. And our job is just to make it more comfortable. And so kind of to wrap this up, you've got the wolf, you know, and you have the shepherd. And the wolf is you know, ambitious, driven, never hesitates. They, they aggressively go towards their goals. You have the shepherd on the other hand, who is a leader and they help kind of guide from the back, um, the direction of where you go and they help you get from point A to point B. And so you have these two very adversarial, uh, characters on the same field, but what does it look like to take the best of both worlds and bring it together? And that's the wolf and the shepherd. That's classic style, athletic fit. That's innovation and tradition. Um, that's, um, you know, um, ambition and leadership. And so 
we are trying to kind of constantly combining these and imbuing them in our products. And the way we do that is through storytelling. And, um, you yeah, know, there. yeah. So, you know, both in the name of the, of the brand, the Wolf and Shepherd, which kind of almost has like the cachet of a law firm. It, it does look good on the foot of the soul. Um, it's, I think it embodies what we represent as a brand. And I think that's, um, you know, something that we try to express in our marketing and our storytelling. So when you go to our, our website or you go and you see one of our ads, like, I don't want to just sprinkle shoes in your face. I think the thing is, if I do that, then it's just another commodity. But what really makes this different and what has allowed us over the last five years um, to, to grow at, an, you know, over 135% on average year over year, um, we're one of the fastest growing, you know, footwear companies in the country right now. And it's as a result of, I believe, storytelling. Um, as one of these first of three pillars. And so, you know, for example, um, you know, when we had started the first story, I'll give you a couple stories and, you know, David, let me yeah. know if you want me to go into more detail, but you absolutely. Know, we, we love, we love story. on the <laughs> Yeah, of course. So, I mean, the first story is, you know, like I think having been a decathlete at Notre Dame, having designed um, athletic shoes for professional athletes, I think gave us a narrative or a story of credibility towards designing a product that would be comfortable for the working and we further validated that story in our first full year of business when I asked a friend of mine who, uh, Eurus Lennox, who went to Syracuse, he was one of, one of he was our ringer, you could say, and we, we asked him to come down to Atlanta and run, run the Atlanta Half Marathon in our pair of our, our honey cap toe closures. This is a traditional cap toe dress shoe, leather sold, um, you know. I, when, when, I, when I watched the video, I was expecting like you know the shoes we've talked about like the the white bottom cole Haan, something that looked athletic and but no they are like it's what i would wear to a wedding and right. i'm like this guy's not about to run a half marathon in these things but sure enough. but he did and and what was funny is he came down and we just wanted him to win the race we had a, um, a contributing writer from forbes track following the story we had written to over 200 publications and that's kind of where this whole hustle mentality has come into place we've always hustled for kind of the results um that we've gotten so Uris ran the race. Um, we followed him with bikes. We had, I had a gimbal in my hand. I walked, I ran the last mile and a half with him with a gimbal and um, he ended up running a 550 mile pace for the hotline half mile <laughs> and won the whole race uh, by over five minutes. And Forbes ended up picking up the story um, the following morning, followed by 48 other publications from USA, USA Today, Sports Illustrated, um, you know, Runner's World, uh, Business Insider, Forbes, um, you know, we had we had a ton of people covering the story because there was the novelty around. Here's just this ordinary guy wearing a pair of dress shoes and dress socks, and he ends up winning the whole race. And so that really kind of propelled us on this narrative of, you know, what can you do in your dress shoes? Um, we, you know, that trailed into we had a guy doing the fat world's fastest commute, commuting, uh, for, you know, jumping out of an airplane, landing in, um, on the roof of his office. To we had. You know, I, we were going to have one of our own staff run with the bulls in Pamplona because the, the liability no was too high. I ended up doing it instead. And so um, you, know, you can see footage of us running with the bulls in Pamplona, Spain. Again, what can you do in your dress shoes to, you know, we had Steve Nash, who's a, a, someone we've been collaborating with over the last year. We launched our crossover with him. Yeah, and, I, saw that. Uh, I was getting Instagram ads for that. Yeah, yeah. So you have like, you know, this is uh, this is just a sneaky. This is a, a shoe that we have that we're doing in collaboration with the Steve Nash Foundation. And it is it is kind of your lunar lawn. This is kind of your premium lunar lawn, right? It's got, you know, Italian leather upper with like a TR rubber and EVA sole. Um, but, uh, you know, we had Steve Nash playing a game of pickup with guys over in Venice Beach. Um, and that went viral, you know, over kind of the hashtag Venice Beach, hashtag Venice basketball. Um, uh, we've, we've done a lot of things like that. Um, you know, we've done some stuff with Rob Gronkowski, um, you know, in our, in our shoes and, and it's kind of started to snowball into, you know, a lot of actual, you know, um, people who are in media and sports, you're seeing, you know, guys, everything from, um, different media commentators wearing our shoes, you know, on NFL network, like, uh, for example, we had, um, Akbar Bayamila, Bayamila, who, Bayamila, who, um, is the host of Ninja Warrior, um, and he's also on NFL Network. Um, he ended up running the um, running the Ninja Warrior course in our shoes, and um, you know we've done things like that that have kind of all kind of in, some of them have some novelty to them. Some of them are actually true performance, but it's like, look, if you can run a marathon in your dress shoes, then you've got to be able to commute to work. 
And I think that's yeah. a way we've differentiated ourselves in this story. But that would not have worked if we had not built a good product as well. Oh, right, right. I mean, completely. I think that is a testament to the product that you have, right? That you can legit run a marathon in them. Um, I think about a lot of the listeners for this show and like when we're when we're walking around on game day, right? So some of the things that we'll do like football season wise, fingers crossed that we're still doing this in the fall. Um, but like we're we're walking around on game day, we're putting in 35,000 steps, especially for a night game, because we're check we're going in through walking through the concourses, looking at concession stands, going out to tailgates, talking to fans, just getting a better idea of what that fan experience and that fan journey is on game day. And so I know everybody else that is working a game day from for again listeners of this show right you're putting in massive steps and you want to have a shoe that looks good and looks professional but at the same time is going to support you on all this stuff right um i'm curious because you guys have used a lot of influencers uh like like a steve nash like a rob gronkowski to help tell those stories what's your take now with i think everybody's doubling down on content production because of coronavirus and where we're at right now that's really all you can do for a lot of brands what's your take on the future of the importance of storytelling and how you see it kind of kind of playing a role in wolf and shepherd well i think you know there's there's kind of two prongs to this one is people are talking a lot about authenticity right now and um, you know, I had talked to another entrepreneur who had started a boot company um, about five, six years ago, and I was asking, well, why do you think people are buying your product? And why, why are they buying your boots over another boot? There's plenty of boots out there. Um, and he's like, well, I think there's consistency in our story. When you go to our website, when you read about us, the tone, the copy, the, the imagery, the design of the product, all of this has what we call, you know, product market fit. Um, there's product market channel fit, though, too. So there's you know, like everything from the price of the product to the quality of the product, to the way we tell that story, to who's wearing it, um, everything has to kind of run in a fluid line. And if it doesn't fluid line more like this, <laughs> um, you know, and, and if you don't have that consistency, then, you know, the, the, the customer or the viewer may not be able to fish out exactly why it doesn't feel right, but they're probably the behavior towards purchasing is going to change. And so like one thing we found is, that the more consistent and cohesive our story is across the product, our customer, like the, the channel in which we're marketing that product and how consistent that story is with the consumer, um, that kind of linear plane being fluid is really, really important. And if one of those things is too far off um, from the that that line, you know, you start to see inconsistencies. You start to see higher return rates. You start to see, you know, customers having more issues with what they thought the product was or not aligning with it. And so there's all of these things that like, if you don't constantly try and pursue product market fit and that narrative is not authentic and cohesive with who you are presenting yourself as, then you don't even know how many um, inefficiencies there are in the chain of your business. Love it. Uh, just out of curiosity, if you can share, who's the boot company? If you feel comfortable sharing it, um, yeah, <laughs> you don't have to. You don't have to. Uh, it was called Boston Boot Co. Um, okay, and I think they're still in business and they're doing all right. You know, so yeah. um, you know, there's but but it's so funny. It's it, within our cohort of brands, particularly the ones that have started online. Um, you know, you've got a, a lot of brands. You've got Thursday Boot. You've got Taft. You've got um, Tacoma. Love, love Taft. Got, you know, Greats and Coyo, and so. Um, exactly. And, and, and we all know each other. So it's, it's interesting, you know, we've all, we, we, we are, we're friendly, but competitive. Um, mm -hmm. and so you have a, a group of brands and I think the ones that are doing the best are the ones that have keep are keeping a consistent narrative from their story and their product and the experiences they're offering to their customers. Beautiful. Well, let's talk more about that product. Um, specifically because that's really the second pillar that you guys have right between stories product customer experiences um so let's let's talk a little bit more about the product itself uh, i'm specifically really curious on how and why do you decide to create new designs why don't we start there and we've got a bunch of other things we can unpack sure. <clears throat> well the surprising thing is that for the first four years we didn't really come out with a lot of new styles um we've started Interesting. And um, that doesn't mean we didn't change the design. Um, you know, we have a full-time developer in-house. Uh, we have two designers. We, um, I'm still heavily involved in the development and design of product. Um, but, you know, when you look at a product like this or a traditional dress shoe that we make, I mean, we've gone through dozens and dozens of iterations. Now, the product itself may not optically look like it has changed, but 
the softness of the leather, the amount of vegetable oil we put in there versus chrome oil, chrome excel oils. You know, how much of the sole is rubber and how much of it is leather? Do we get that from true Germany or do we get it from Italy? Um, you know, a lot of these things we've kind of just been massaging to get what we believe is the, the best product on the market. And so, um, you know, I, I come in from more of the performance footwear space. I've always tried to think about how do you make foams better, more, more buoyant and last longer? Um, how do you reduce the break in time of a shoe? Um, how do you make it lighter? How do you make it accommodate the a variety of foot shapes? Um, you know, how do I, and one thing we did when we started with our product was we, I, I started with a, with a track spike or sorry, a trainer, um, a running okay. shoe. And I took the foundation of a running shoe, the last, and which is a call, it's called a forma in Italy. And, um, we take the last of the shoe and I, I kind of emulated the heel to toe ratios of kind of like your ideal trainer. And mm -hmm. so we took the, the shape and the fit and the heel to toe ratio of a training shoe. And then we adapted the silhouette to look like a dress shoe. Um, so that was the start. It's kind of like start with the frame and you build out. Yeah. And then, you know, we've always, I think almost we started by, you know, I'm realizing after the fact that storytelling is the primary driver of success here, but you know, that doesn't work unless you have the credibility of the product, but we started with the product. And so at the beginning, what was the product we were offering our customers? And was that something different enough and compelling enough that consumers really wanted to try it out? And in this case, it was to say you have a shoe that you can run a marathon in strikes and piques someone's interest enough to actually try the product. And one thing we found is that, for example, for us, we've got a 41% repeat rate on customers, which means that That's huge. You know, um, a huge amount of our customers are purchasing again within 12 months. Um, and they're usually buying at a higher value order value than our first cust first purchase, which means that once somebody puts on the shoe, they're hooked. And you take a comparison of our shoe relative to your English made, Italian made traditional um, shoes, which are built on heritage and nostalgia. That's their story. Ours is on performance and comfort. And so if we can give you this differentiated story around our product, which is we differentiate ourselves with an unparalleled level of comfort without compromising on the craftsmanship and quality you'd find in luxury goods and the classic silhouettes and styles that you can wear in almost any scenario. So having that kind of coupled together around what we believe is a great product, that's how we define great products. Um, that coupled with good storytelling has led to, I think, a lot of customers being happy and that that's kind of, I think, represented in the growth of our business as well as um, you know the returning customers that come back to the brand every year. So it's interesting. Um, maybe maybe this will take us down a rabbit hole that we don't want to go down, but I, I kind of want to explore it just out of my own selfish curiosity. So when you're thinking about a repeat customer, you're kind of defining it as somebody that's repurchasing within 12 months. Um, I, I think about my own experience with high end, I guess, right, high end footwear um, at a kind of similar price point. Um, with Taft boots, right? Which we mentioned earlier. Um, so I've got two pairs of them, but I bought them outside of that 12 month window because the price point was higher. I'm like, I don't really need to spend another 250 bucks, 300 bucks on a pair of boots. Um, but so then if that's the case, am I falling out of that repeat customer? How are you capturing that kind of longer life cycle of your customers? Because I think a lot of people listening to are, are kind of thinking about what is that lifestyle? What is that lifetime value of a fan or customer? How do we factor that in? Well, we, we look at, I mean, we do quarterly surveys with our customers, with segments of our customer base and asking them what they need. Well, what, what would they prefer? And, you know, it started out that people would buy the shoe and they're like, hey, it's getting scuffed up. How do Got I take it. care of this? So we started developing care products for particularly for the leathers we make. Um, we work with, um, you know, we were selling kind of the best in class product that was imported from France. Um, and then what we started doing is we kind of looked at how um, they engineered the, those creams and oils and waxes. And we started to create our own branded product that worked and was adapted to our leather. So we actually developed, the thing is that most of these brands that you hear about, they're buying a stock leather from a stock manufacturer. They're buying a stock foam. Um, and we've kind of, because of my background in innovation, we've taken a lot of liberty over the last four years to develop our own hide. So typically, for example, a dress shoe leather is mostly a chrome tan leather. It closes the pores and causes you to get a higher shine and a more firm silhouette on the shoe, which it looks more dressy. Um, but you add vegetable oil and vegetable oil actually softens the leather and actually expands the pores. So you have, you know, more fold to the leather and that makes it softer, reduces the break in time, makes it more comfortable. So we have about a 60-40 blend of chrome tanning to veg tanning. Well, you can't do that unless you have enough volume with a manufacturer and you're also co-investing in the time to develop that product. So that kind of goes into your development costs. 
um, we have a memory foam that retains its palpability for over a two year period, which means that like typically when you feel memory foams, like it's great right out of the box, but a week later it just stays, stays compressed. And ours actually, we have customers who are re asking for a resole or for us to kind of recraft their product for them or repair it. And the footbed is still as boring as it was two years ago. And they're saying, I want to keep that. I want to keep the upper of the leather, but the parts that wear down can you replace. And that's why, you know, we've made our products resolable in the forefoot and heel. And we do that at essentially half the cost in about a quarter of the time of, of, uh, of our competitors. Um, you know, I, I, I think that in, in the product, you know, talking about skew proliferation is something that we, we were concerned about initially. And now we're starting to say, okay, well, we want to offer more alternatives. So as our customer, back to your question says, well, I really liked this shoe and maybe within 12 months they come back and they buy another color and, and they're great. Now they're kind of done for a little while. Yeah. Um, but if we have the care products, then they usually say, you know, we notify them, we share with them, like, you know, use these care products to, to get the right shoe. And then we'll say, you know, we'll come back and they'll, they'll see, you know, a driver or they'll see the matching belt. Maybe they, they, they bought our shoe and maple or honey and it's really hard to find a matching belt. Well, we use the same exact leather with the same finishing processes on that belt so that it has a perfect match. Um, so then they pick that up and they pick up the shoe care products and then they buy this. And then it's been a year and a half, two years since they bought another dress shoe and they buy the, the crossover, the hybrid. Mm. Um, and so, you know, having constantly having new narratives, we actually... At this point, we feel like we've gotten to a point where we've really developed great leathers. We've developed great cushioning. We've developed our own proprietary memory foams um, and our footbeds, which we have, you know, pretty harsh, you know, tight contracts with the manufacturers to ensure that, you know, none of the manufacturing or molding is being exposed to competitors. Um, all of this yeah. stuff has allowed us to, I think, create a differentiated product that it's just a matter of time before more people are wearing them. Well, and I, I just love this whole concept, right? I think in, in sports and entertainment in this world, right, we tend to get so focused on operating what we know, right? In that, our, what are our current revenue streams? There are ticket sales, there are um, multimedia rights and, and broadcast rights, right? And they look, I think, I think a lot of times we, in our industry, we look at it and we're like, these are our revenue streams. How can we maximize and optimize these revenue streams? Instead of starting to look outside of it and saying, what are our customers actually looking for? What are they what are they actually needing? What are their goals? What are their motivations? And how can we spin out alternative or complementary products and services that we never even thought about, like this, the leather care uh, kit that you're kind of talking or alluding to um, that can then spin out some extra revenue and keep people engaged in the, in the customer cycle longer. Um, so I, I love that. I think that's a huge lesson for everybody listening. Well, I want to share this. I mean, you know, it's interesting when, and this, I, even though I've worked in this industry and, I see the sales reports with my company and I saw them before. Um, they indicate kind of how successful something is. But even if you know, you still don't, it doesn't, um, even if you, you kind of know the results, you don't know the future. And so like, I'll give you two examples. One was, okay. you know, the Nike Free. So the Nike Free had those little buddies. It had the siped sole and allowed you to get a lot of flex in, in the midfoot and the heel, which, you know, throughout the whole shoe, it was very amorphous. Um, People think that, that was an instant success. It became one of the best sellers for Nike um, for almost you know a decade. And what people don't know is that it still had the same entrepreneurial story of most companies like Lululemon. Like nobody heard of Lululemon until eight to ten years after it had already been founded, and then they're like, "Wow, this came out of nowhere." Um, same thing with the Nike Free. It's like their first product run was two thousand units, and then you know eight years later they were producing millions of units per colorway. Um, you know and <laughs> People are like, oh, well, it just came out of nowhere. Like they just knew and they like figured it out. You know, it's like most of these people start small. It's like, you know what, if you're selling, you know, 40, $40 billion of product a year, um, 2000 units is, it, it goes under the radar. It's discreet. Um, but as you start to get momentum, you start doubling it and doubling and tripling it and quadrupling it. And you do that with mitigating your risk. So you try something, you don't know it's going to succeed. It's like Christian Louboutin came up with the red sold shoes. Right. And that's like, the famous, you know, the red sole shoe is like what Cardi B made a song about it. Exactly. You know, but the irony of that is that it was actually when uh, Jimmy or sorry, what it was, it's like when he was in um, when he was working as a cobbler, he had, you know, an assistant who had for a client, you know, decided to use her lipstick to, to, to paint the bottom of the sole and then covered it with wax. And then the customer happened to like it enough that she told her friends. And then a bunch of people came back and wanted the red sole. 
And now everybody says, oh my gosh, this person is a creative genius. And, and certainly he is. He is, yeah. he is very creative. He is very good at what he does. Um, but it just happens to be that he became a genius after the fact because the Red Soul became so prolific and became an icon. Um, my point is that like people identify success after it's already happened. Yeah. And, you know, and then once you identify that, then you have to quickly be ready to scale it. Um, I think we we're starting to see that with, with this hybrid shoe that having an alternative in this premium space where you can say, you know, I want something that's comfortable, that looks good and feels good, but it's a want product. Um, that's what I'm going for now. I thought this was going to be, you know, almost more of a need product for a younger 20 to 35 year old consumer who says, you know, I grew up with sneakers and, you know, I want that sensation of wearing a sneaker with my dress shoes. So I thought this was going to be for a younger consumer. Now, certainly a younger consumer is still buying it. But the irony was that who is who wants this? It's, it's like it's this is a want product. It's not a need. When you buy a dress shoe, for example, um, you're buying it for, you know, I ran my, my black or brown shoes are worn down. I need a new pair. Um, I got a new job. So I'm going to get a new pair of dress shoes. Um, I've got a I'm wedding. going to a wedding. Yeah, exactly. So I'm going to buy some shoes. So it's it's based off of a need. And so that comes more intermittently. Now, when you think of. And I thought, okay, great. This need product is going to be something that because of the higher price point and the higher quality, it's going to be, you know, a more mature consumer. What we found though, is that actually it's the 20 to 35 year old guy who's buying our dress shoes like crazy because they're saying, you know what, I want to impress. I need to step up for this occasion. So I'm going to invest in this piece that I need to be successful. Interesting. The hybrid. And so that was opposite. I thought it was going to be an older consumer. Um, but now we've adjusted and we adjust our marketing to reach that in that individual for the hybrid. We thought, oh, the 20 to 35 year old guy is definitely going to want this shoe because it's cool and casual and, you know, it's high quality. And what we found was it was the guy who had already made it in his career who felt like he didn't necessarily need to dress up for the occasion, doesn't need to wear, you know, the you know dry clean suit, is wearing kind of relaxed fit clothing, who's saying, I want that and I can use it for whatever I want. And it's, I'm getting it because I want it. And what they do is they buy two or three of these because they say... Um, well, I can wear that with, I can literally wear that with a suit and I can also wear it with khakis, jeans, and shorts. And I like Steve Nash because I know who he is and he's awesome. And yeah. so, you know, if he's, if he's, you know, essentially endorsing this one, he doesn't need to, then it's gotta be pretty cool. Um, and I think that that, uh, is kind of what engages the customer in something that isn't, I need this for a particular occasion. It's, I can wear this for almost any occasion. Yeah, I think, and I think too, like from what we've seen, organizations tend to get caught up in focus groups and like, oh, we need to, you know, we need to have these things done and, and these surveys and stuff conducted ahead of time. And it's like, yes, you want to have some hypothesis for what you think is going to happen, no question, uh, some strategy to it. But you got to know that that's going to get tossed out the window 90% of the time when people actually start having to check out and pay money and put their credit card down for a product. You're going to really start to see how people use it when you roll it out in some type of smaller capacity. Um, but yeah, that's so, great lessons there. So I think that, you know, kind of going to this third, third pillar, you know, we talked about like, you know, I think I believe that you have to lead with incredible stories. You have to have the stories be authentic and true to who you are as a brand. And that needs to be different than everyone. That needs to be different than the majority and this goes completely against what we typically naturally want to do. We see that someone else is having success doing X. And so then we all rush towards the, the market leader and say, we need to emulate the market leader. Mm -hmm. um, they're doing that. So I need to do that. And you kind of made a good point in a prior conversations we've had. It's like, you know, uh, not to toot our own horn, but like, you know, Notre Dame has done a really good job of finding product market fit and creating a narrative that is authentic to the customer and hence Football is a profitable sport. Um, you know, basketball, I believe, is as well. Um, but, you know, that there's a heritage, there's a nostalgia to that that they've kind of tapped into. And um, I think that that story um, is is very authentic. It's incredible, you know, and, and, and they have a product that matches that. Um, but, you know, for other people, if we try to emulate that, it doesn't necessarily work. You can't tell a story of, of nostalgia and heritage if you're you know, Oregon or something like that, that it's right. Not, right. That's not your stick. Winning and being the best, you know, it's, it's yeah. kind of tapping into being, you know, kind of their, um, their relationship with Nike, you know, being kind of the winning and leading, you know, sportswear company in the world. 
And so it's like, we have more Olympians than everyone else. We are the best, you know, and we perform the best and we're fresh, you know, like, whereas like we've been wearing the same uniforms and if they do change, they change by like 2%, you know? Yeah. So it's like, you can't say, oh, well, we need uniforms like Oregon and Oregon need, needs uniforms like, you know, Notre Dame because they're different, you know, they have different ethos, they have different missions and stories um, and they need to stay consistent with that. So my point is that like, if, for example, in our industry, if like, it's like, you don't need another dress shoe option. You don't need another dress casual shoe option. Maybe you need more of these and options because really you've got one other brand to choose from. But I, I think the point was that, you know, most of these other brands in my space have been built on heritage and nostalgia. It's English made. It's made in Italy. You know, it's craftsmanship with a Goodyear welt and cork cushioning. That is the pinnacle of dress shoes. Um, but it's not. I mean, we have to think about it a different way. You know, the way we approach it is we want to win. We want to be the best. We're kind of more like the, I guess, Oregon in this narrative of like, <laughs> we want to take the best of tradition where we came from. Like, I. I, I believe tradition is a powerful tool. It's a powerful thing to kind of, you know, embrace. But how do we honor tradition while innovating on something new? And that's authentic to our story. So we need to find stories and we need to have products and we need to have experiences that emulate that. But as we test new things, we have to do it small. You know, we kind of test with the minimum viable product. We didn't buy as many of these when we first started as we have bought in our best sellers because the best seller we've had some predictive sales we know how much to buy we underbought on it we sold out it sold it turned on inventory four times faster than our best seller and then you know we bought more of it and so now we've bought more of it and we're hitting that demand um and and that's something that just is trial and error but being quick to iterate and then invest in small chunks allows you to do something that otherwise could be too great considered too great of a risk yeah Oh, I love it. Um, well, let, let's talk a little bit about a little more about that third pillar, which is kind of creating incredible customer experiences. Um, you know, it's it's one of the things that we say nothing nothing kills an organization better than good marketing and a bad product, right? Um, you get people to come there, and it's a bad product. But you guys have got both of those things, um, and I think the third thing is that what does it feel like when people actually get the shoe? What's that shipping process look like? What's the checkout process look like going through that customer journey um, of how am I interacting with the product? Um, you guys do a great job with that as well. So talk to us a little bit about your strategy for creating incredible customer experiences with the shoe. Right. So um, I will start by saying, you know, I believe that this is a pillar that we've been investing a lot of money in and we've done our best to provide an excellent service, probably better than most in our industry. Um, how we do that is something that I, I will admit is something we're always looking to improve on. I think experiences for customers making things better is kind of like, it's like running full speed on a treadmill. Like you're, you almost feel like you're never making progress. Um, but because a lot of it is time, money, and thoughtfulness. And um, for us, offering a great experience for a customer has derived from customer feedback. And, um, you know, for example, we look at, you know, when do people, how do people want to experience this product? They need to experience it in person. So if I can take this shoe and give you an opportunity to try it on in person, I know that you're going to more likely get the right fit. You're going to purchase more frequently. What we found is, for example, shoes are very intimate. So one way we drive great experiences is by starting to have these retail stores. Retail stores are expensive for a younger brand. But what we know is that the return rates on shoes go down over 12% of total sales by having it in-store, in-store purchase. Um, having highly trained sales staff to know the knowledge and the technology of the product um, helps with that. We've seen that uh, by making and having a face-to-face -face intimate experience with footwear, not only reduces um, returns or issues with people having fit, fit problems, but it also increases the loyalty, the, the, the return rate on customer happens faster and more frequently at higher order values. Um, and, um, you know, the, we don't have a cost of shipping the product. And I think something that people don't realize in our business is, you know, um, you know, it costs 15 to $25 just to ship the product one way. It's a four and a, it's, you know, you got a four and a half pound package with everything involved. Um, and, um, you know, you it might, it might seem free to the customer, but it's not free to you guys. It's not free. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, if you exchange once you like in, in terms of packaging, shipping costs, insurance. I mean, you're talking about 70, $80, you know? And so 
it's it gets very very expensive. Um, there's time. There's ways you can reduce that. You know, we for example to increase the frequency in which we get products, we started augmenting. We have a warehouse in the West Coast and the East Coast, so that you can you don't ever have to ship past zone four. Um, all of these things we're looking. How do we get the product to our customer faster? How do we ensure that they have less t- less shoes they have to try on and they're more they're happier faster with what they buy from us? Um, what about the longevity of the product? Well, you know, one thing that people don't recognize when they look at a product is they look at the picture and they say, I like the picture or I like what it looks like now. What does it look like in a week or a month, three months or a year? And, you know, we use very fine leathers that you know, frankly cost 15, 15 euro more per square meter um, than probably top of the line leathers in, in other countries. And, um, we have the best leather, but the great thing about that is that your shoe won't look creased and wrinkled in one week or a month. It'll look great a year to 10 years later. Um, and those are the kind of things that overall drive a better experience for our customer, let alone, you know, it's expensive. For example, we, we, we employ our own, our own staff here in North America. Uh, we have uh, for customer service and um, we're, we're open seven days a, a week from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., um, Eastern time. And that also providing those amount of hours as a younger brand is, is an investment. Um, great. And we've had to augment those during the coronavirus in part because we've had to really kind of tighten, tighten up a little bit in order, in order to continue to survive as a business and to continue to thrive. Um, but overall, like we're constantly looking for ways to iterate and to make investments for the customer because that really helps kind of mid and long-term retention. If we don't have great experiences for a customer, you know, the marketing gets someone to buy immediately, you know, the product gets them to keep that product. And then the great experiences and the great product allows them to come back time and time again. And that's where the lifetime value of the customer is greater. That's so true. Um, so I, I think I would be remiss if I didn't go back and ask this question. So as you guys are rolling out in, in person, um, now do you, do you have your own retail stores? Are you partnering with other kind of bigger box places to get your product in there? It's a great question. Thanks, David. I, you know, we, we do both. Um, okay. We, I think what's shifted now with, you know, prior to the coronavirus happening or COVID-19, yeah. we, um, we had intent to launch three, three more stores this year. Um, and we um, were starting to work with big box retailers on, uh, on wholesale orders. And the great thing there is that we wanted to have that exposure. We wanted to learn from their customers and provide them with something that was an alternative to all the other options. Um, that may shift as we yeah. get out of this crisis and we see what happens with retail. But my belief is that likely what will happen is we're going to need to own our channels for the majority of our success. And so by having a really fluid website experience, but whether it's through your desktop or your mobile app or your iPad um, or tablet, you know, we need to have a quick, fast, clear message that you can understand and that engages you. Um, and then we couple that with the retention of having select stores and strategically placing stores as we scale. So I think that those two channels being the primary channels will continue to be uh, really important to us. And then as we find uh, select uh, retailers, independent retailers and um, uh, big box retailers that, you know, that where we align on messaging and service for our customers, you know, we will selectively start to bring those in as well. But who that is going to be is kind of up for grabs right now. Maybe we do a, a part two in a, a year or so when you've identified some of those people, because I think that's something that a lot of our our listeners struggle with as well is the whole concept of owning our channel. Um, I think a lot of third party partnerships have been made, whether it be for people that are staffing the event, right, from a ticket taker to security folks to the people that own broadcast rights to to their organizations and the content that they're putting out. And I I think traditionally it's always kind of been like, who's going to cut us the best deal and decisions have been made on how much money can we save or how much money can we make? And let's just go with that bigger offer. But I think now as we go forward into this world where there's just, especially now post coronavirus, where, I mean, finances for everybody are going to be tight. Attention has never been shorter and harder to get a hold of. It, it's it's going to be really hard, harder, almost harder than ever to get uh, a share of wallet and of heart and attention of people. And so I think the importance of owning your own channels is going to be huge once we come out of this thing. Right. Um, 
Well, let's let's kind of start to wrap up here. I've got a a, a question I've not asked anybody else, but I've got to ask you, right? Uh, what is your all time favorite shoe? My all time favorite shoe. Um, you can go. You can go professional, per, like casual. Well, you know, go ahead. I, I would I would be biased. So, for from a running shoe perspective, um, there was a, a zero drop. Uh, road running shoe. I'll have to look it up and later for you. But um, New Balance had created a really great uh, zero drop running shoe, uh, road running shoe that um, I, I wore a lot when I was coming out of school. Um, the but in terms of my favorite shoe today, um, I, I think one thing that I've been really excited about is um, our. We have this uh, loafer we're coming out with. It's going to be on the crossover sole. Um, but it's, it's like a traditional penny loafer, like a slip on loafer, yeah. the kind of Venetian style that we're going to put on, on this sole unit. And so, and it's just a slip on uh, loafer, penny loafer that you can wear with this sole. Um, and I've been wearing it probably the last five days in a row. So it, it's become my favorite shoe. It's a good, uh, good coronavirus, uh, shoe if you will a little casual uh, it's a good coronavirus shoe. I, we're gonna have to throw the pre-order up now early because i feel like you know <laughs> it's not coming for a few months <laughs> um well we'll ask us this final one if, if people are interested in uh buying a wolf and shepherd shoe what 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 do you have for recommendations is like hey what's my starter shoe um what should people go get and, and where can they find you guys if you have a want in a shoe then i would say get the crossover long wing um, it's this shoe. We have it in, uh, black, mid brown and light brown or onyx maple and honey. If you have a need for some dress shoes, get a cap toe. Our cap toes are number one selling dress shoe and the cost of the long ones are number one, uh, selling hybrid. And, um, you know, uh, David, I'll, I'll go ahead and uh, send you a, a promotion code that you can your, your customers or your viewers can, can nice. use as well. Um, but we'll, we'll give you a, a 25% off for this period of time. It'll, it'll last for, for a month and then, you know, probably will go away after that. So, um, we'll just call it, um, you know, come up with a name and I'll make it into, um, uh, engagement, engagement 25 is, is going to be, uh, the code. It'll be, we'll, we'll link to that in the show notes and everything. It'll be in, it'll be in David's show notes as well. Um, but you know, everybody should be wearing our shoes and, and I'm pretty bullish on us having the best shoe in the market. Perfect. Uh, well, Justin, this has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, appreciate you coming on. Uh, and to all my listeners, uh, hopefully you guys got some good value from this. Hey guys, before you head out, just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. That helps more of your peers find the show as they search for ways to get better in their own roles. But this podcast is just a small part of what we do at Engagement. In our normal day in the office, we're crazy focused on helping athletic departments and sports and entertainment companies generate more revenue by becoming more customer-centric. To see how we might be able to help your organization, visit engagementpartners.com to learn more. Download a free guide, check out our blogs and case studies, or schedule a call with us if you want to see how we can help with your particular objectives. Our goal is to help you create deeper connections with fans and generate more revenue. So when you're with us, hopefully you find a nugget or two that helps your cause.